Linda Souza was driving home from her martial arts class one afternoon in the middle of a January snowstorm in Pittsburgh. As she merged onto the icy freeway, Souza's Dodge Dakota pickup truck began skidding across multiple lanes. And basically, I just lost control of steering and started to slide sideways across the lanes of traffic. And as I looked to my right, um, I could see this Mack truck coming at me in my lane. And I thought to myself, this is how people die. The Mack truck could not avoid hitting the back of Sousa's pickup, but she was able to accelerate into a grassy ditch, narrowly avoiding serious injury. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Needless to say, that was Sousa's last winter on the East Coast. She moved to Los Angeles, where she's now Senior Vice President of Marketing at CareerArc. The company offers technology-based social recruiting and outplacement solutions to help HR leaders recruit and transition employees. Sousa is a 7x tech startup marketer with more than 20 years of experience helping lead early stage and growth stage startups to successful exits. Prior to career arc, Sousa served as vice president of marketing for cryptocurrency and blockchain startup GEM, where she was my colleague. Sousa also served as vice president of marketing for Deep Six AI, an award-winning artificial intelligence software company. Linda, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Chitra. I'm excited to be here. Tell us about that potentially fatal highway accident that January day. So I was training at a a martial arts workshop, actually. This is back when I was living in Pittsburgh in the early 2000s. And it had started snowing while I was in uh, the, the class because it was in January. And by the time I got out and had to hit the road to get home, which was a good 30 or 40 minute drive home, it was a full on snowstorm. And I was driving a pickup truck at the time, which uh, unfortunately does not have great traction all the time in the snow. And as I was trying to merge onto the highway, which had not been plowed or otherwise treated, um, I just started to spin out of control. And, And basically, I just lost control of steering and started to slide sideways across the lanes of traffic. And as I looked to my right, um, I could see this Mack truck coming at me in my lane. And it was kind of like that, that one micro moment where I had to figure out what do I do? Because, you know, he's coming right at my driver's side. And I thought to myself, this is how people die. So within that split second, I just jammed my foot on the gas and accelerated as quickly as I could and managed to make it into the ditch that separated the two sides of the, of the highway. And while he still hit the back end of my truck, fortunately, it was enough that it, it didn't do serious damage to me. It, it did a lot of damage both to my truck and to his truck, um, but no one was hurt. Um, so, you know, if I had been even a split second sooner if I had frozen or, you know, if that instinct to just take action hadn't kicked in, we might not be talking today. How did you regain control of the situation and what did that teach you about yourself? What it taught me about myself is, you know, we never know in a moment of emergency like that um, when something's going to happen, what our reaction is going to be. I mean, we'd all like to think that, you know, we're going to take the right action, we'll be a hero and whatever. Um, 
but you really don't know until you're in a scenario like that whether your reaction will be fight or flight or freeze, right? Um, and so for me, uh, fortunately, what it showed me is that in that split second, in that moment, my instinct is to be very clear-minded, um, to focus, not to panic, but just to focus on what do I need to do to get myself out of this and to take quick action. So that almost fatal brush with the Mack truck was, was in a way, the culmination of a, a kind of a difficult childhood and early adulthood, wasn't it? Tell us a little bit about that. Um, so I actually grew up on a dairy farm in upstate New York um, until I was about 17 uh, and actually moved my senior year of high school, which also was not an easy thing. But um, yeah, it, it was for anybody who, who has ever done any type of farming. For me, it was a dairy farm. Uh, farmers are incredibly hardworking people, um, really, because you have no choice. It's 24-7, 365. Uh, and for us, that was certainly the case. Um, I know in, in my parents' case, they felt like by the time we were, my sister and I were seven years old, that was old enough to have chores and to be responsible, um, you know, as contributors to on, on keeping up the farm and so forth. Um, so at that point, you know, that, that sort of began, I guess you could say my working life, <laughs> you know, from the point I was seven on, I always was on the hook for working and contributing. And, you know, if there were holidays or vacations or like summer holidays or whatever, or weekends, that meant that we were available to work more. So, you know, while during the school year on school days, I would come home um, and go directly out to the barn and spend a couple hours working. If it was a weekend or vacation, I would do chores in the morning as well as in the evening. And, you know, each time of year had additional chores as well. So in the summers, it was haying season, spending time in a hot hayloft all day, wearing long pants and gloves and, and long sleeves and working um, in addition to my normal chores. And in the winters, it, it meant going out into the woods with my dad and, um, you know, he would chop the firewood and my sister and I would help throw it into the truck and then throw it into our cellar and then carry it up the cellar stairs for the, the wood fireplace, um, the stove that we had to heat the house. So definitely my, my childhood, I would say, is characterized by a lot of work and, you know, with with a type of environment like that with um you know kind of the the pressure and the stress that farmers are under both the amount of work that they're doing ongoing which never stops um and then also the financial um distress of that as well because unless you're a very big commercial farm a lot of these small family farms you barely make enough to get by you know it wasn't unusual, for example, you know, we'd wear our boots literally until there were many holes in them and we couldn't wear them anymore. Um, our idea of waterproofing, so to speak, uh, would be to put our feet in Wonder Bread bags, empty bread bags, and then put our feet in the boots. And that was kind of the waterproofing. So even if the boots got holes, we could still wear them until they were at the point where you just couldn't wear them anymore. Um, and you know, kind That's of amazing. That's incredibly, <laughs> I mean, I'm exhausted just. Being, you know. 
And 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 you were wearing hand-me-downs too, and and long sleeves. You know, you mentioned long sleeves, and they almost got you in a whole bunch of trouble one day, didn't they? Uh, yes, actually, I was wearing a hand-me-down winter coat from um, my grandfather, and obviously, it was way too big for me. And I was in the milk room, um, which is where all the milk is stored in this big metal tank, and it has an agitator that keeps the milk stirred. It, it basically just continually rotates with a big paddle and I got my coat caught on a piece of the machinery um, because it was too big for me and it basically pulled it into the machine. And what happened? Um, I ended up with a compound fracture. Um, basically the bones poked through my wrist. My uh, forearm was kind of in an S shape, almost like having an extra hinge in the middle of my forearm. That's, oh my gosh, that sounds terrible. And, and so how did you, did you go to the hospital? What happened next? Um, yeah, so they had to cut me out of the machine. <laughs> um, I, was, I was fortunate actually that they, that my, my sister, because we were in the middle of doing chores, walked into the milk room when she did and ran to get my parents. Um, but they cut me out of the machine, out of the coat, and then I had to walk the, the long driveway between the barn and the car to then go to the hospital, which was about 25 minutes away. And how old were you at the time? I was 12. And, and you, that wasn't the end of that broken arm story, was it? You, you, you spent many, many years dealing with that same broken arm that seemed to get broken over and over again. No. Um, unfortunately, the bones weren't set right. Um, so actually I had, I used to call it my ski slope. Um, so the arm was still not straight and it was just weak at that point where the, where the bones had kind of knit together. And six months later, I broke it again. Um, and again, it was set wrong um, by the same doctor. I'm not, I'm not sure why we went back to him, but, you know, maybe we didn't have many choices uh, given our, our financial situation. Um, and uh, actually Shriners Hospital for Children, um, the, uh, they were, the location in Montreal took me in. They specialize in um, both orthopedics and burns in children. And my case, I guess, was fair enough that they accepted me into their program. And um, that's when, obviously, I had to, they had to re-break the bones again and reset it and put in metal plate and steel screws. And, and, and did that help heal it? It did. I still have the screws and the metal plate in there. And you had other issues too uh, in those days uh, with your childhood, with, uh, with your father, et cetera. Um, yeah, unfortunately, I think with the, the stress of farm life and um, financials and so forth, um, he, it kind of led to alcoholism um, for as far back as I can remember. Um, so there, that's also something as a child that's hard to deal with. He was a, a little bit of an angry drunk. Um, he didn't, uh, physically abuse us. Um, but obviously he, he did a lot of yelling and breaking things. And, you know, sometimes there were times, for example, he would send my sister and I out into the field to pick up stones and, and things like that until it rained or my mom came out to get us. 
Um, so that, yeah, definitely added another kind of layer of challenge to my childhood. So what was the lasting impact of all of these um, stress points with the lack of money and your father's situation and uh, all of those, those layers of stress? Would you say, what did that teach you and how did that shape you? I mean, I think those difficult situations, anytime you're, you're faced with hardship, um, either it makes, either you fall victim to it or it makes you stronger as a result. And I think for me, it was the latter. I think it was definitely a character building time. It gave me a lot of grit and perseverance. It, it gave me an appreciation for the value of hard work. Um, and uh, I would say also uh, a great deal of resourcefulness, uh, which comes in handy, especially in my role working with startups. You know, when, when we were working on the farm, you don't always have the luxury of being able to throw money at a problem, for example. So you need to find other creative ways of solving a problem that's maybe not, you know, the obvious path. Um, so having done that as a child actually has benefited me as an adult. And and I remember one particularly vivid story you told me one day when we were in LA about one of your tasks that had to deal with literally uh, watching manure on the dairy <laughs> farm. And, and you were talking about what that taught you. Yeah, um, yeah in terms of uh, worst jobs. <laughs> so one of my jobs you mentioned, uh, because I was in upstate New York, it was very, very cold winters. And if our... Um, machines froze due to the cold, but continued to try to run, it would burn out the machine. So one of my jobs when we were cleaning the gutters in the barn would be to, it was, um, you know, and I don't know even what the official name was for it. Um, it's kind of like a manure elevator <laughs> that takes the manure from the barn up this almost like an escalator type thing. It's like a big arm over this big pile of manure. And literally my job was to stand outside and to watch the manure fall off the end of this manure escalator type thing into the pile to make sure that it didn't stall, that it didn't like freeze and cause the engine to burn out. So, you know, when I think about um, sometimes you know, with any job, there are always things that you enjoy less than, than other aspects of your job, or even, you know, working up through the ranks and so forth. There are a lot of jobs that are maybe not the most fun or most glamorous or whatever, but, um, you know, in comparison, it, it it's made me not, um, there's nothing that I wouldn't do uh, within reason, of course, but there's no job that I feel is below me, let's say, because there's no job that's worse than that, <laughs> that I've, that I've done so far. <laughs> yeah. And it's easy to laugh about it now looking back, but I'm sure as a young girl, there were many days when you just thought, what am I doing? It was not my favorite, no. <laughs> and I did, you know, when I was a kid, I did think about, because I, I really do love animals. And one of the things that I thought about was, do I want to be a vet, you know, when I get older? <laughs> and I did think, you know, I just, I don't want to, uh, I'd like to work in a nice, clean environment where I don't have to be surrounded by manure. So that's why I ended up pursuing business, which was also very interesting to me. So how did you end up in marketing? 
Um, so when I was an undergrad, uh, I was taking a lot of foreign language classes. Uh, I was actually majoring in foreign languages because I was always interested in people and language and communication and so forth. And um, I ended up uh, taking a marketing class as part of my French marketing business certificate and just realized, wow, I, I really love this. For, for whatever reason, it just really clicked with me and was extremely interesting. Um, and, you know, from there, I just took as many marketing classes as I could. And actually, my master's degree is in marketing. And you're now at Career Arc uh, as senior VP for marketing. What is Career Arc? Uh, so we're an HR tech company that helps um, businesses basically recruit and transition the modern workforce. And and I guess it's a particularly relevant job right now with the massive numbers of unemployed people. You know, due to COVID nineteen, what trends are you seeing? You you you've got a particularly uh, interesting perch looking at the layoffs and hirings and firings and outplacements and all of that. Yeah, this has been a, a challenging time for a lot of companies. That's for sure. Um, and you know, we kind of we did a little um, internal study um, a couple of weeks ago to look at the impact of COVID across all of our customers, both on the recruiting side as well as uh, layoffs. And what we've seen um, was that hiring, obviously, hiring slowed across the board. Um, but it has already started to come back, which is uh, very promising. Um, the impact uh, has been different for companies both within and across industries. Um, so, uh, for example, you know, if you take uh, an industry like healthcare, there are um, some hospitals, for example, uh, who can't hire quickly enough. And then there are others, uh, for example, who have a lot of elective procedures and so forth, which was paused for a while. And so for them, the impact was quite different. Um, same thing with, for example, senior living uh, communities, um, where they continued or ramped up hiring because there was an outsized impact of coronavirus on the older population. Uh, so it's just very interesting that, you know, even within industries, and we've seen it even within regions where certain states, for example, based on the um, regulations and guidance put in place at the state level, have been impacted differently, even if it's the same company in just a different location. COVID-19 has caused these sweeping changes in the way people work. Uh, what are you seeing and what do you think uh, is going to be the long-term impact, not just remote work, but talent strategy, compensation, pay scales, all of those things? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I think right now it's causing a lot of us to reimagine the way that we're working and um, I think some of the changes we're seeing will be a little more permanent. So obviously uh, people were already starting to work from home, but I think a lot of companies still felt a little bit of hesitation in terms of can people actually be productive? Will they be? And now this is proven, yes, you know, in the majority of cases that model could work. So I think we'll see 
a lot more of that going forward. I, I don't think it will be everybody will permanently work from home at all companies, but I think there's going to be a bigger appetite for that and a bigger demand for that. And then that opens up things like, okay, well, does that mean, for example, if I'm in a place where it's very expensive to live um, and so salaries are elevated, does that open me up to talent in different parts of the country if I don't need someone to physically come in every single day? And you know, that also entails, well, now we have to rethink the compensation structure. Do I pay less if I'm hiring in Kansas versus Los Angeles? Um, what about employees who were coming in, were living in a very expensive area, but now they've decided if their role has been deemed okay for remote work, now they're deciding, okay, I don't need to live in Silicon Valley anymore. I'm going to go live in Idaho should we adjust their salaries? Is that fair? Can we do that? You know, these are the questions that, that companies are asking. And I think there's going to be many more questions. Um, and, you know, some, sometimes it, it might be on a case-by-case -case basis. Sometimes it might be setting a, a policy for new hires coming in versus how you handle existing employees. Maybe it's a little bit different. I don't know, but I, I know a lot of HR people are already thinking about those implications um, kind of down the line, but there will be many more for us to, to address. Yes, in terms of pay scales, you've already seen one big company, Facebook, uh, say that, you know, if employees, all employees can work remotely, however, there's their pay might change depending on where they are. And it, and I think particularly for new employees, they may face a very, very different workplace and pay scales and all of that than, than those who are already in place. Yeah, exactly. And I kind of wonder, you know, how how is that going to go over with existing employees too? Because once you, you've set a certain agreement and expectation with an employer, how do you renegotiate that contract in a way that's fair for both, but doesn't leave the employee feeling like somehow they've been devalued? So I think that's a real challenge and something that, you know, HR leaders need to look out for just from a morale standpoint and, and how that's going to affect your existing workforce. And in terms of how people work, even in the workplace, with all of these social distancing guidelines, I think morale probably could be a real issue, right? Because people have to work in an entirely different way, looking over their shoulders almost to be safe than they've ever had before. Yeah, totally. And I think that's why you're seeing some companies that are opting to stay out of the office longer. Um, some have already said, we're not going back this year, or some have even just said, well, we'll go back, but probably in the fall. Um, whereas other companies feel that having that face-to-face -face interaction is important, but I'm not sure how realistic that's going to be like how employees will respond to that. If, if I go into the office and I need to wear a mask all day and I need to sit behind a glass partition and I have to be careful, I can only walk one direction in one hallway and, you know, how disruptive will that be? You know, we're rotating parts of teams in and out. Is that creating more disruption than working remotely or will that be to everyone's benefit? And, you know, sometimes it even comes down to just the personalities of the people involved. So certainly, you know, some people are very much reveling in this work from home opportunity and other people, if they're real social animals, um, 
you know, they're really missing that, that social interaction and for them being back in the office, you know, is worth the trade-offs. Um, and yeah, so I, I think it'll be interesting to see how the model works. And I think it will have to be kind of on a case by case basis. I don't think there's one hard and fast rule that works for everyone. What do you think will happen in the fall if there's a second wave of, of infections? Well, I think the um, positive thing is that now that, you know, this first time that the the pandemic happened, none of us was really prepared for it. Um, so there were just, number one, there was just the sheer surprise of being blindsided by something on this scale um, that we never really expected to come to pass. Um, and then the the mad scramble to figure out what do we say how do we communicate to our our employees how do we communicate to our clients and other stakeholders how do we figure out how to work remotely you know i was lucky i was in a tech company so we were all set up for that it was a somewhat easy transition but that's not the case in all companies so we already had to work through those really big gnarly problems and the big surprises. I feel like if we go into a second wave, if that were to happen, um, at least we've already figured out the routines and the procedures and the communication patterns and, and things like that. We don't need to figure that out again. So yes, we'll still need to social distance and stay home and things like that. It'll just feel like ugh, more of the same. Um, but I feel like people will be able to weather that a little better than this first time. I think it was really difficult, especially in the beginning. Linda, looking back at that 12-year-old on the dairy farm, you know, with her arm caught in a paddle or forced to pick up stones or, you know, later that young woman fighting for control of her pickup truck, uh, uh, what would you say to her about this journey that you've been on? I would say that... Uh, this will only make you stronger. Um, I think all of all of these challenges, um, I actually, I wouldn't change them um, because I think they, it's the collection of all these experiences that really shape who you are. And um, I think it has made me a stronger person in general, a stronger person in business uh, and action-oriented, hardworking person and a very resourceful person. And all of those um, traits have served me well, both in life and in business. Well, having worked with you for a couple of years, I, I second all of that. <laughs> uh, do you have any, uh, or have you had any, what I call uh, viral insights about your life and work, you know, from that moment of clarity brought upon by a crisis? Um, honestly, it, it gives me a sense of calm, I guess, uh, and a sense of confidence uh, that when everything goes wrong and, you know, I, I need to act quickly, that I will have the presence of mind, the clear mindedness to be decisive, um, to act fast and to make the right choices. Um, so I think that, uh, you know, the, the unknown is scary and this gives me a little bit of peace of mind that I have in the past 
reacted in the right way to get myself out of the situation. And I can do that again. Linda, thank you so much for joining me today and for the fascinating conversation. Oh, thank, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm honored to be part of your podcast. You've had some wonderful guests and I've really enjoyed her- hearing all your stories. So thank you for inviting me. Linda Souza is Vice President of Marketing at CareerArc. Souza is a 7X tech startup marketer with more than 20 years of experience helping lead early stage and growth stage startups to successful exits. Prior to CareerArc, Souza served as Vice President of Marketing for cryptocurrency and blockchain startup GEM. Souza also served as Vice President of Marketing for Deep6 AI, an award-winning artificial intelligence software company. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.